0: What happens when the smallest subatomic particles scatter off each other? You might say, who cares? But it turns out that investigations into that simple question lead to a host of insights about the underlying structure of the universe. It was technical advances into this field, known as scattering amplitudes, that helped enable the discovery of the famous Higgs particle in 2012. And it also enabled theorists to unearth mathematical objects of great beauty that describe the scattering processes. These objects are the most perfect microscopic objects in the known universe, according to my guest today, the Stanford theorist Lance Dixon. My name is Graham Farmelow, and I'm the author of The Universe Speaks in Numbers about the intimate relationship between mathematics and our best understanding of the natural world. One chapter in the book is about scattering amplitudes, and Lance Dixon is one of its stars. Along with his collaborators, he came up with a host of new insights into optimal ways of calculating the likelihood that subnuclear quarks and gluons scatter in various ways. It's quite a technical branch of physics, but it's closely linked to real experiments, which is why it first appealed so strongly to Dixon, as we shall hear. I first met Dixon at a scattering amplitudes meeting in Caltech a few years ago. Although quiet spoken and modest, he stood out as an exceptionally thoughtful contributor. I was looking forward to getting together with him in London last summer. After a hearty breakfast in South Kensington, we talked about how he came to be interested in scattering amplitudes, why the subject is so compelling for him, and where it might be heading. I began by asking him about his earliest work as a researcher when he was a PhD student at Princeton University. In the spring of 1984, he was studying quantum field theories and the objects that feature in them. But the focus of his research would change quite suddenly after the theorists Michael Green and John Schwartz wrote the paper that ignited what's known as the first string revolution, when the string framework for understanding the fundamentals of physics took off.
1: I remember that that project involved a little bit of numerical analysis. So I was set up at the computer terminal working on it and and my advisor came and he had just heard about uh, the String Revolution that uh-huh. took place in the summer 1984, and he slapped down next to me a review by
0: John Schwartz and he said, read this, we're all going to be doing this soon. Ah, so let's just go back to that, just, just do a scene setting. So here we we have a theory that not many people were particularly interested in, but that paper by Michael Green and George Schwartz changed things, didn't it? That's right.
1: At Princeton, Ed Witten had been following what was going on, but not many other people had been, but that totally... Uh, sort of revolutionized the field, at least at Princeton, and uh, everybody started working on it. And uh, so then I got involved and uh, worked on what we would call string compactifications or ways of turning a, a theory that might look like it wants to live in 10 space-time dimensions mm-hmm. into one closer to the real world. So I worked on in that area for about five, seven years maybe. Wow, so, so you, you became a string theorist then? Yeah, Very so much I a was, yeah. after that point I, I could say I was trained as a string theorist in the second half of my time as a graduate student.
0: Dixon became an accomplished string theorist and even today I hear his contributions mentioned in talks on the subject's development. But in the early 1990s he decided to switch his focus to a different subject mainly because he was concerned by the huge challenge of connecting the string framework to the real world.
1: And in the early 90s, I sort of switched fields. I looked at what was happening in string theory, and there were more and more ways of trying to connect string theory to the real world. So many that you might worry that you would never be able to figure out which was the right way. Mm. And I had a moment where I decided I really wanted to do something that could be connected directly to experiments, so right. that I could you know, plot theoretical curves that you could put data directly on. Was that unusual at the time, or were many people doing that? Uh, I don't think that many people right. were, were doing it at the time, mm-hmm. but as time went on, more and more Uh, it was looking like the road between string theory and testable predictions was going to be a much longer... And that's obviously important to you. Yeah, Yeah. I decided that at least I wanted to do something that made contact with experiment before my career was (laughs) over.
0: The move to scattering amplitudes required Dixon to learn a lot of unfamiliar physics. Physicists sometimes call this retooling. He joined forces with his colleagues Vi Byrne and David Kossauer and they brought several techniques from string theory to the study of amplitudes describing subnuclear scattering.
1: At first, could try to reuse the string technology that I had. And uh, one of the important things was that two people who became my long-time collaborators had already made an interesting step in this direction mm-hmm. and that was Vi Byrne and David Kossauer. Ah, right. And so they had... Worked on how to use string theory to calculate uh, what we call one-loop amplitudes, mm-hmm. the next term in a certain approximation.
0: And so you're just just, just start yeah. we're looking at the uh, uh, collision, say between quarks or something like that. Right. You're calculating the probability of what happens, and so yeah, uh, you're, you're looking at the not not the biggest term, but the one after that. That's right.
1: Yeah. So if you uh, yeah collide quarks, which are inside the proton. Hmm. or you could also collide gluons. Hmm. Gluons are the force carriers between the quarks, but they also exist inside the proton. So the proton is a big bag containing quarks and gluons, and when two protons collide, sometimes you can describe the result in the interesting cases as as the collision of two quarks or a quark and a gluon or Hmm. two gluons. And at that time, in the early 90s, people had started to learn how to calculate processes where two of these objects came in and three or four or maybe five came out but not a whole lot more than that and always at the lowest order in the approximation for the next order in the approximation only the simplest possible case had been discussed where two go in and two come out and so nobody knew how to do the case where two went in and three went out
0: the method of doing the calculation why the method had been existing since the late 1940s. Richard Feynman had basically set out the framework. That's right. It was very hard to do those calculations
1: in this example, right? So the uh, Feynman diagrams were a tool, a universal tool Mm. for physicists, and, Mm. and they, in principle, could give you the right result. But in practice, the number of diagrams that you needed was starting to get out of control. It wasn't too out of control at that point, but it was clear it was going to get more out of control.
0: One of the most fearsome challenges of interpreting data from collisions between ultra-high energy particles is the problem of separating out what's known as the background. That background consists of the millions of particles produced by all the collisions that are predicted by well-established theories. In principle, the outcomes of all these scattering processes can be calculated using field theory. For collisions between the protons in CERN's large Hadron collider, the calculations often ran to hundreds of pages of complicated algebra, using the standard theory of the strong force, known as quantum chromodynamics. But advances in scattering amplitudes theory made many of these calculations much simpler, sometimes replacing hundreds of pages of mathematical manipulations to just a few lines of algebra. As the switching on of the Large Hadron Collider approached, physicists urgently needed to calculate this background accurately, so that they could identify any events that betokened new discoveries. In this way, experimenters might be able to isolate the small number of events that would constitute the discovery of the long sought Higgs particle. In his understated way, Dixon was pleased that the work he and his colleagues had done helped the experimenters at the Large Hadron Collider.
1: We were actually doing it long before the uh, experiment at CERN, the Large Hadron Collider, mm. came along. Mm. And I was sitting at an electron lab, SLAC. Slack, and yeah. so my goal was to do things first for electron-positron collisions. Mm. And uh, But one of my collaborators, David Kassauer, was a big fan of proton collisions. Mm. And so his goal was probably to apply them more directly to Proton colliders, mm-hmm. eventually the LHC, but at that time the Tevatron at Fermilab was was the big proton
0: collider. But it was always in the background. That the that LHC was, was out there yeah, in the okay. future. Yeah, yeah, okay. So I've spoken to some of these people at CERN, and they, uh, in the discovery of the Higgs, for example, they said, in their view, it, it would have been very difficult to make such a clean discovery without. Uh, having that amplitude technology, which you and your colleagues uh, worked out so well. So this was an important part of that discovery. Yeah,
1: So we helped, and we weren't the only ones, but there were a lot of people trying to reformulate the program of calculating these amplitudes with less reliance on Mm -hmm. Feynman diagrams. Mm -hmm. And in the beginning, we were using string theory, but pretty soon after we had calculated the first, amplitude that hadn't been done by earlier techniques we could look at it analytically and understand its structure and then we could start to see that there were reasons why it had the structure that it had and we could trace that back to a different way of sort of picking apart the amplitude and looking at different pieces of it and that went along the lines of some uh terminology called unitarity, and unitarity is basically that the sum of all the probabilities of anything happening should add up to one. So we investigated whether we could just use that principle, which was even simpler than string theory, mm-hmm. and yet it became even computationally more powerful. So although I had been able to benefit from my background in string theory as a kind of a crutch in making the leap into this other mm-hmm. field... After a little while, we realized that we didn't need the string theory part of it so much.
0: Did Dixon and his colleagues ever work side by side with experimenters?
1: I didn't uh, write papers directly with experimenters, but I was, uh, you know, influenced by them and, and knowing what their capabilities were. And when I was retooling from string theory to what we call QCD phenomenology, I was also attending meetings of the SLD that was a detector at SLAC. It right. was uh, looking at annihilations of electrons and positrons into Z bosons. And the Z bosons would then fly up apart into quarks. Mm-hmm. And it was an, a nice QCD testing ground. So there was a group uh, who met at Slack every week, the SLD QCD group, to study the predictions of QCD for these ZDKs, and that was important for me, because I got a better understanding of what experimental capabilities were, and they suggested things to look at, and so that helped in my transition into this area.
0: Scattering amplitudes have become a hot topic among theoretical physicists. How does Lance Dixon see the field shaping up, and is he optimistic about its progress, or is he getting worried that it might be stagnating?
1: No, I think it's really uh, been very vibrant and lots of new people with new ideas coming into the field. There's a branch of it that's gotten fairly uh, mathematical and sometimes I inhabit that branch too, but uh, there, there are also people working to generate more predictions for the LHC and sometimes that mathematics is actually necessary. So. I think it will be still interesting to see where it turns in the end. It has a lot of connections to uh, other areas in particle theory, like conformal field theory.
0: I've heard some sceptical theoreticians in other fields wonder why so much fuss is made about understanding something so fundamentally simple as a scattering of fundamental particles. Does Dixon think there might be a long-term payoff for theoreticians, as well as experimenters from all the work done on these amplitudes?
1: there's the uh, notion that as we've learned more about these scattering amplitudes, we see that their simplicity is unveiled by different pictures of them that go well beyond Feynman diagrams. And and one of my colleagues, Nima Arkani-Hamed, has made the point in developing with uh, his collaborator, Yaroslav Trinka, a new picture in which the uh, kind of principles that underlie Feynman diagrams are thrown away, and they're replaced by different principles mm-hmm. that are more geometric and less based on notions of causality. So it's quite possible that when these ideas are fully developed, we could see a picture in which the, what we view as the primary rules now might end up being emergent, and other rules based more on geometry might be seen as as the, uh, the principal underlying rule.
0: Finally, I asked Dixon if he ever worries that experiments on high energy particle physics might come to an end in the foreseeable future, when the experiments become just too expensive even for international collaborations.
1: So many things could be different if there are generalizations of the standard model. So it's really incumbent on us to explore this Higgs boson as much as we can. And the LHC is the place where it was discovered. And so the initial exploration for the next decade or so is probably going to have to be at the LHC. But there may also be the need to build another machine to test the properties of the Higgs boson in a cleaner environment. So there are other proposed machines that involve collisions of electrons and positrons. And it may still be that the LHC will turn up Um, Mm -hmm. other kinds of particles, but they are just uh, much harder to see. There are certain kinds of particles, they could be producing them at the LHC, but because they don't produce them so often, they're buried inside the backgrounds. And so we need to do a more uh, precise investigation of the data that's being collected. Mm -hmm. And at the moment, the LHC has collected about, I think about a 30th of its anticipated eventual data. So with that extra factor of 30, there are still many things that could come out. And so I think there's still reason to be optimistic about getting a new understanding of this sort of next layer of structure of matter from the experimental program and lots to anchor theorists to keep them from wandering too far off into extra dimensions or uh, <laughs> <laughs> do, you, do you ever uh,
0: get because I mean, if you look at the history of of science as an activity the sort of the way we think about particle physics is relatively recent really. I mean, does it ever worry you when you wake in the middle of the night that this subject may not be viable because the energies uh, that people like you and your colleagues require are just too high to be financeable? Do you think that's, uh, do you think that's a, a plausible worry or, or not? Well it's true
1: that uh, the machines that we seem to need to do the most direct investigations are in the billion-dollar class, so they're quite large on the uh, scale of of uh, individual science projects. Mm-hmm. But they're, in principle, still within the easily within the realm of what governments can spend money on. Mm-hmm. So it it really comes down to a question of priorities, and there are many important things that governments should do. But the opportunity to investigate nature and to understand. What is going on at the shortest distances, some of which might also explain mysteries of the cosmos, like dark matter. I think it's an opportunity we shouldn't pass up.
0: Although Lance wears his learning lightly, he's a deep thinker and has much to teach us. One point he often stresses is that the invention of a smart new method of doing calculations in theoretical physics is usually more important than any single discovery, because a new calculational method often leads to yet more discoveries. That was illustrated by the great work on scattering amplitudes done by the American theorist Richard Feynman, and it's been reinforced by the work of Dixon and his peers. They, along with their experimental colleagues, are making it possible for us to hear the subtle modulations of nature's voice, which is often a good deal quieter than we would like.